Hello, everybody, and welcome to JavaScript Jabber. I am your co-host, Joe Eames, and my other co-host is AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 it's SolderJS coming at you live from the office room with all the electronics everywhere. <laughs> do you have a lot of electronics everywhere? Uh, yeah, it looks ridiculous. It looks like I know way more than I do. If you just looked at my desk right now, you'd be like, wow, that dude's a maker. <laughs> well, well, that dude went through retail therapy is what happened. Retail therapy, right. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. There's only two of us today, so I don't think a host makes any sense. We're co-hosts now, AJ. All right, that's cool. That's cool. That's yeah. Cool. It's very benevolent of you. It is benevolent. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I don't think so, but whatever. Okay. We are going to be talking about TypeScript. Is it good or bad? Which is a perfect episode for AJ and I to talk about because we're both strongly opinionated. We love to yell and shout things out, uh, regardless of how much we know about them. That's true. That's true. I think I'm going to be especially good at this because I don't know that much about TypeScript. That makes me more capable of having a strong opinion of it. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's let's get the ball rolling. Let's talk. I think it'd be good to talk background and frame our experiences with TypeScript itself and then with uh, typed languages as well. You know, so you want to go first on that? Okay. Uh, well, um, so first of all, for those that have been living under a rock, TypeScript is a typed version of JavaScript that compiles back down to JavaScript. You want me to talk about my experience with with typed languages, my programming path, or yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Give that, give us a, a brief rundown of that and any relevant experience with TypeScript itself. Well, I I could tell you my my first experience with a typed language was I I copied and pasted an element of an array in C to be able to get a scanner driver working. Was that effective? It was actually like I got it wrong the first time, but then I messaged the guy and he's like, Oh, you need to increase the size of the array because the arrays are statically sized. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And I did that. And then I got my scanner working. So I was pretty happy. So type languages for the win, except that if it had been dynamic, I would have just been able to add the thing to the array and I wouldn't have had to change the size of it. Well, and that's not true either because there's plenty of languages like Rust and Go where you just declare it and the compiler can be like, Oh, look there are statically eight items in this array. Therefore, I will type the array as the type of things that are in it, and I will uh, make its size fixed to the size that it is. So, right. Uh, but, uh, but I, so I, I started out with, I, you know, like most people do, I, I, I picked up, uh, well, actually first, like basic, but then after that, PHP, and then uh, Python, then Ruby. So mostly dynamic had a little bit of exposure to C just as part of getting that, that scanner driver working. And then did end up doing quite a bit of, of C work at 
my first job out of college, uh, but I'd already been familiarized with JavaScript at that time. Then the next the next two big things that uh, in oh oh in school I, I use Java of course like everybody has to write Java in school but I don't, I don't even count that as experience really because it was completely pedagogical and I didn't ever use Java in the real world other than I don't know like tiny 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 little things uh, then uh, Go and Rust are type languages that I really really enjoy I uh, I think they're both great languages and. Um, but I, I had some exposure to TypeScript and I didn't like it. Gotcha. Okay. So would you consider yourself to be more of a typed language person or a dynamic language person? I don't think that's a, the right question to ask me because I'm both. You're both? I, amb- amb- ambityped? Yeah, I, I'm ambitypedrious. <laughs> Are you loosely typed? Uh, let's see. I see. I, I, I forget that. Okay. So this is something we should probably actually bring up and get definitions for because there's loosely typed, strongly typed, weakly typed, and strictly typed. Like there are four different types of types. I, yeah. I'm going to Google we, that. See well, dynamic, you missed dynamic. Right? There's okay. like, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot in there. And I don't think I have a, enough clarity to give a, a lecture on the various typings. I, I looked up some a couple of things as we were pre- preparing for this. I see static versus dynamic, strong versus weak, but yeah, then there's still loose, you know. I think weak is loose. Weak is loose. Okay. So so I, I think this is what it is. So static typing, I believe, is when it has to be determined at compile time, whereas dynamic typing types can change at runtime. And I think strong versus weak typing, I think strong typing is when you cannot change something. So you declare, you know, var i equals zero. You cannot then later on do i equals the string foo. Once you declare it as one, I think that you you can't then redeclare it as a, as another without it being a new variable. Mm-hmm. And then the weak typing, I think, is where you get things like implicit conversion. So like zero equals equals quotes zero that that type of thing i think that's what weak typing is say that again so when you have the number zero equals equals the string zero and that returns true you have you have weak typing because you're saying well these types can be coerced they're similar uh-huh. um, so I, I think when when you can have a, f- a function or a variable that could store two different types that operate similarly, like strings strings of numbers and numbers. I think that's what weak typing is largely considered. So I'm a, I'm a fan of strong typing, and mm-hmm. I, I say strong dynamic is what I like the most. Strong dynamic. Yeah. Which I guess, I guess here's where my hypocrisy comes out. I think that would technically be TypeScript. Interesting. Interesting. I, I'm, I, I think it's more... There's there's certain things for certain tasks, right? Like, right. If you just want to like loop over some some crud quickly, I love JavaScript for that. I love the looseness and the flexibility, and just like not having to be concerned about anything, and just throw some data together, loop over it, munge it, throw it out. It's just awesome for quick scripting, prototyping, anything where where you just want to get to the demonstrable result. But I also love 
Go very much, which is, um, it's, it has more of the strong typing. It feels dynamic. It is static. It happens at compile time, but it feels dynamic in that you don't have to declare that something's an int or that something's a string or whatever. You just do the assignment and it knows what it is and it just has to be consistent and the, the compile time checker checks that. But I find that to be really productive, uh, especially if you're doing something like a parser or an API or things where you need you need it to be more stringent and you want it to go into production and be performant and you want to get faster failures. I think that those are the benefits I see. So I like both for different reasons. How about you, Joe? Well, one thing I wanted to jump in here with is as I was reading up a little bit about this, I saw something I thought was pretty interesting in this document. It says C is notoriously weakly typed because any pointer type is convertible to any other pointer type simply by casting. That was something I was not aware of. I, I myself don't have really much of a C background, but I thought that was pretty interesting. I feel like I have certainly some confusion on static versus dynamic makes some sense to me, right? It's compile time, right? A variable at compile time, you decide that it is a static type. You statically decide that this variable is a string and it's never going to be anything else but a string. Whereas the strong versus weak, I don't feel like I have nearly as much clarity about that. So I feel the same, but I, I typically think of it as strong types are ones that don't coerce easily. Mm -hmm. I would consider casting. Casting is an explicit thing. However, like for example, in Go or uh, Rust, you can't cast a value to a type that it isn't without mm -hmm. uh, using what, what's called the unsafe packages. I, I don't remember if they're called the same in both languages, but a lot of the newer languages have a, a package or an import that's unsafe. And basically, when you import that, what it does is say, for this block of code that's within this realm of unsafeness, I'm not mm -hmm. actually going to check your pointers. That's, that's essentially what it does. But with the newer type languages, Typically, you can't cast something to a type that it isn't that that's not allowed. I would consider that more of a language bug than a right. Really, a type. Yeah, this document mentions bugs in the past in Pascal, like oversights in the design and stuff that introduced loopholes in the type system to make Pascal technically weak, even though it was designed to be strong. So, but casting, right? I think it's important to clarify casting when you is like an implicit type of a thing, right? Whether it, no, it's, it's, it can be implicit or explicit. Oh, yeah, right? okay. I think of casting as explicit. Okay. But you, can, you there is implicit casting too, right? There, uh, there is, like what we're talking about, the string zero and the number zero. Right, right. Um, another example of that is when you concatenate a string with a number, right? Then it implicitly Absolutely. converts the... But that's different than converting types, right? So if I have a number, just about any language so far as I know, allows me to create the string representation of that number through some piece of functionality, usually like some helper function, right? Usually called string or two string. Right, usually called string or two string. So yeah, let me go through my my like background and my experience with TypeScript. I've got a fair amount of experience with TypeScript. I've been doing quite a bit of it uh, for quite a while, but in TypeScript even first came out. But my background was I started in a language called FoxPro, which was, I think, dynamic dynamically typed, but probably weakly typed. I'm not 100% sure on that. And it's, it's been so, lo so darn long. That was like 96 through 99, I think. Then I did a little tiny bit of Visual Basic. And then it was all C Sharp from that point, which C Sharp is statically typed, but you might call it weakly typed because you can... I, I think it's more strongly typed, but again, I'm not 100% positive on that. 
I did that for quite a while. I did that through pretty much the entire decade of from 2000 to 2009, 2010. And then around 2010, I switched and started doing JavaScript. So JavaScript was my first exposure to a real, truly dynamically typed language. Other than I think around 08 or 09, I, I, did, I took a hand at trying some Ruby. And um, I discovered a, a ton of really interesting things when I tried Ruby that I thought, man, that's really cool. But it wasn't really until I started doing JavaScript and really got in the depths of it that I started to get this appreciation for the coolness of a dynamically typed language. And it was funny because I have all my C-sharp friends who are very much into C-sharp, but potentially was the only language that they knew or outside of what they learned in college, right? And so in the only production language, they'd been doing it for a long time. They knew it really well. They liked it really well. And I was talking about JavaScript with them and they were like, oh, JavaScript, you know, it was... And in, in 2009, JavaScript was a very different language than it is today. It was still full of... We'd been using it, obviously, for quite a while because we were building websites. But, you know, most people, when you do websites in the 2000s, really your JavaScript was jQuery. And so JavaScript was this ugly language and you used jQuery to hide the ugliness of it. So, okay, first of all, not first of all, interjection. Interjection. Objection, Your Honor. <laughs> as as a, a computer science purist, it like, I'm not going to change the world. I realize that, you know, this is a problem. I have to deal with it. But I hate it when people refer to the DOM as JavaScript. Because jQuery is JavaScript. The DOM right. is not. The DOM is like, some of it, depending on the browser, was either Java or C Sharp or C++. The DOM is not JavaScript. That is a very good point. That is an absolutely good point. And so definitely some of what I said was more about what the experience was like as a JavaScript. As a JavaScript programmer at that time, you weren't a JavaScript programmer, you were a jQuery programmer. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I was getting to, is that people talk about the early days of JavaScript. What they mean is they were getting a browser to do stuff. They weren't programming. They were not being software engineers in JavaScript. Not to say that no one was, but like a lot of the stuff that was happening in JavaScript was code monkeying around. It wasn't right. it wasn't like building libraries and and logic and it yeah. was it was it was widgets. It was a lot of it was widget work. Yeah, like JavaScript in that like in that time was starting to become from this ugly thing that you had to use, it was beginning to transform into something that was eloquent. Right, right. So uh, around that time, I started doing some JavaScript, and I started telling my friends about the beauty of JavaScript. They just a lot. Some of them couldn't really get it, and I I compared it. I was like, say C sharp, and I, I'm I'm a big fan of C sharp even to this day, even though I haven't done it in forever. But I was a really big fan of C sharp, and I said C sharp is like a, a wonderful seven series BMW. You got air conditioning, and it's it's got a, this nice smooth ride, and you can't hear the road outside, and it's just. It's just a fantastic experience, right? And it's everything about it is crafted to make it amazing. Whereas JavaScript is a motorcycle, right? And so when people say, well, how can you use JavaScript? It doesn't have this thing. You say, well, that's like asking, how can you ride a motorcycle? It doesn't have air conditioning, right? And it doesn't have a radio. Well, if you've ever ridden a motorcycle, you don't. Although there are some motorcycles with radios and they're even... Very loud ones. Very loud, yes. When they have radios, you know... Right, right. So anyway, it's like it, it, the, some, in some cases, the question, once you realize the, what it's like to program in a dynamic language like that and, and start experiencing, some of the questions just don't even really make sense anymore that people ask. And so I really went through this like revolution 
where I started doing JavaScript and I was just so in love with it. And then, of course, I went through the CoffeeScript phase. I didn't actually do it, but did you do CoffeeScript? Um, I don't know, maybe for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that was... I didn't... I, the, the thing that got me was... Back, so back then, the debugging tools had gotten so much better, but back then, you didn't have maps. And so people would get errors in their CoffeeScript. And Ruby syntax is different from JavaScript syntax, and particularly some of the ways that the like ternary operators and the um, like chained, chained if, else type operators mm-hmm. um, would work a little bit differently. And so people would get these errors in their CoffeeScript, and they'd have a really hard time debugging them. One, because it, it's literally a different language. like The semantics of the language work differently. And then you, you couldn't figure out, okay, how did CoffeeScript on line 52 produce error in JavaScript on line 78? Right. So I, I think I took a look at it, and it was neat because I actually I just come from Ruby when I started getting heavily involved in JavaScript. And so it was neat, but it just, to me, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. It was too distant from the real language. Um, mm-hmm. And I just didn't see the value in... It's like, well, if you're going to invest your time, invest your time in what you need to learn. Right. So CoffeeScript for, and I, we should have like given an explanation here. CoffeeScript was a, a very, a relatively short-lived phase where somebody produced another language that transpiled down to JavaScript, but they tried to kind of smooth out the rough edges of JavaScript. By I, CoffeeScript seemed huge to me. Like people yeah. were doing PRs where they'd rewrite an entire project in CoffeeScript. In CoffeeScript, yeah. And certainly there's plenty of relatively well-used open-source projects today that are still written in CoffeeScript. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't just small changes to the language. They were literally, it was Ruby. Like, they were implementing Ruby and JavaScript as much as they could as to, to every letter that was possible. That, that's what I remember of it, at least. Right. It was like right. hardcore Ruby. Right. So then along the path comes uh, TypeScript, Right. And uh, Microsoft came out with it. It was created by the language designer C-Sharp, I believe, right? Uh, Anders Heilberg, is his name, I'm probably butchering it. He created the TypeScript, which was, they took, you know, the same concept of CoffeeScript, another language that then just transpiles or compiles, however you want, whatever word you want to use, down to just regular old JavaScript to do things. And they took a slightly different approach and, it's a superset, so any valid JavaScript is valid TypeScript. Obviously, the converse is not true. And its number one goal is to add types, but it also does the secondary, uh, several secondary tasks. It adds new functionalities. And one of the other big things that it adds in addition to types is basically uh, ES, late, the latest JavaScript transpilation. So you can use the latest JavaScript features and have browser compatibility. So if you want to use something that's really recent, like Map, and it's going to or arrow functions, and it's going to a browser that doesn't support arrow functions, like an older version of, like an, a version of IE or something, then it will just transpile it out to regular functions. But so that's, that's TypeScript. And when I encountered TypeScript, it was pretty interesting because I'd gone through this phase where I was loving dynamic typing and JavaScript, and then I encountered TypeScript, and the types started coming back, and I was a big fan of C-sharp, still am, and, and I didn't dislike static typing or statically typed languages. So when it came back, it also felt very familiar as well to me. So I think that made it easy for me to relatively a, a adopt TypeScript. So that's my background and experience uh, with static languages and TypeScript. So 
Moving on to phase two of our talk, TypeScript. And the, and the whole point of this episode is TypeScript, good or bad. So I'm going to start off by taking the pansy stance of, I can't say that it's either good or bad. I don't prefer it. Why don't you prefer it? There's a number of reasons. One is that I actually like JavaScript, and it seems like a zero-sum game with the alternate script languages. And like, if one of them w- wins, JavaScript has to fail. It's not entirely like that, but it, it feels like that in the community. Like People are trying to get rid of JavaScript, and they're trying to figure out what language to replace it with. But I actually really like JavaScript. And TypeScript is not necessary. Like it, it's mostly like JavaScript, but there are things that are different. And there, there are things that I find to be useful for writing concise code. Although, like I, I don't disagree that you you can get better out of the box tooling with something like TypeScript. All that tooling, as far as I'm aware, is available in JavaScript as well. You just put annotations. You use JS Doc, and then you can get all of the type helpers in your tooling, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. But you, you know, it's JS Doc. It's not the syntax of of the language. And so it is a little bit more effort to write JS doc than it is to just annotate the type right in the language. But right. so I mentioned earlier, uh, I don't know if we'd actually started the show yet, but but uh, variable shadowing, I find it very useful. And maybe you can tell me, maybe the TypeScript does allow this, but I find it very useful to be able to do something like, I don't, I don't like to do it all the time. I don't like to overuse it, but it is useful sometimes to be like var num equals, you know, grab user input. And so now I have a string because user input was a string. And then I can do num equals parse int, whatever, you know, num. And now it's what it really needs to be. So I don't have to have like a, a num string or num input. And then num, I can just reuse the same variable as I'm progressing to, uh, to basically describe the same thing, but like in different, in different uh process of the of what's actually happening with the parsing hmm. so that it's you know continuous and then just some of the the dynamic I, i'm going to say hacky do although i don't think it's like ninja foo hacky do but just you know some of the little hacky do things you can do with a dynamic language where you just shove things together can can produce more concise code where you know you you have uh, an object that's just a bag, uh, meaning it holding different types of things. An object that has some numbers and some strings and some other stuff on it, or an array. Occasionally, it's useful to have an array that has uh, different types. Oh, well, one thing that comes to mind is a parser. If you're writing a parser, typically you're going to be dealing with an array of arrays, and it's actually kind of nice to be like, well, the first element in my array is going to be the number that signifies the type code of this thing. And then the second element of my array is going to be either a string or another array. Like it, it's it's nice to be able to munge things mm-hmm. like that in some particular circumstances that I find myself in often. And so I like the looseness of JavaScript for those tasks. Gotcha. Gotcha. Especially when it when considering that it has to go into a browser, that all those bytes have to be shipped to a user. I know not many people care about byte size anymore. But to me, it's still important that you can have a, a smaller file that you deliver. And so the, I think that's, it's probably not the 
the real benefit that anybody should focus on, but I think that it is a nice benefit that you can have very small and concise code when the language is dynamic. Gotcha. Right. So to clarify in there, are you talking about TypeScript bloating the delivery package size? So I think that, yeah, you definitely are getting, from what I've seen, it definitely looks like you're getting a much larger deliverable because you're not taking advantage in places where you could be taking advantage of things being dynamic, you're having more boilerplate. Like when I write Go code, there's a lot of boilerplate because of the type system. Interesting. Um, Rust handles that a little bit better because it has a really, really, really clean macro system. But it is very typical in a type language, you get a ton of boilerplate, even if it's a really nice one like Go or Rust. Right. I'm going to say I don't have much clarity in the fact or in any studies showing when I say studies, even informal, showing what delivery size of the transpiled JavaScript looks like comparison to how you would write it yourself, especially on something of any reasonable size, my gut tells me that there's probably not much difference in the delivery size in TypeScript because everything that it adds tends to go away when, at, during the transpilation process. So right off the bat, if I wouldn't necessarily assume that TypeScript actually creates a larger delivery size, although since there is transpilation going on in the process, but I assume even if you're not going to be using TypeScript, AJ, you're probably a fan of using Babel or something so you can use ES2018 features and, and well, you should down to 20 ES5 or something. So, so there's, a, there's a fair point, too, because I don't, I don't use that. Like, I just use vanilla JavaScript because it has everything that I need. Like I, like I said, I liked JavaScript back when it was just JavaScript. So the language features that I would consider to be idiomatic suit me well enough. The, a lot of the new stuff that's syntax sugar that's been added on top, I find to be distracting, uh, more difficult to visually parse. And I, and I don't feel like it, it, like to me, I don't see a lot of value in it. So I'm not already using something like Babel. If I was already using something like Babel, then I probably would be less opposed to uh, TypeScript, because I've seen the type of code that gets generated from these code generators, and I know it gets better, and I'm not up to the state of the art, so it's probably way better than I think that it is. But the code often looks like absolute crap and is really bloated because it's it's trying to emulate things in weird ways. The, the canonical example that I don't think has to be used much anymore was um, let used to have a ton of boilerplate for every let statement where you're doing all these try catches and basically just abusing try catches in order to emulate what a let looks like. So on every line that there's a let, you have like three or four lines of try catch boilerplate. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that's the case anymore, but there's a lot of stuff like that where I, I'm, and I'm sure there's options. You could be like, you know, compile dash dash, don't actually check types at runtime or something so that it doesn't put all of that boilerplate in there. But in output that I've seen, typically there's a ton of extra boilerplate and garbage that is difficult to reason about as a human, as well as just doesn't look like it would reasonably perform performantly or, and, and, is, and looks like it's increasing the code size. So not being a person that uses Babel, I definitely, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to comment on the average person that does use Babel, if they're, what benefit or detriment they'd get with those sorts of things in TypeScript, it probably all washes out, like you said. Right. Again, I don't have much clarity, certainly on the current state, anything, and you know, as you said, things change so often. And 
we're talking about something like TypeScript. That's a language with, I'm sure, a relatively large team of people who spend a fair amount of time doing things like, hey, how can we make this code faster? And then there's the converse side to that, right? Where they might be able to write more performance and even smaller code than you would write using the same structures in ES5 that are written in TypeScript. There's also that possibility as well because they have the opportunity there to do things that you either do not know about or don't have time to to do and the transpiler does them for you. So there is that converse side of it as well. That is something that is totally uh, valid and worth mentioning because one benefit that you get with transpilers is if you if you write idiomatically according to the language that you're transpiling from, you can get major benefits from that where it is better, more concise, and more performant than the code that you would have written by hand because they are doing static analysis of the code and reducing uh, easy-to-detect patterns into a much simpler end product. So, so I could be completely wrong with the current state of the art. It could be that your TypeScript code gets compiled even smaller and simpler than code that you would write by hand. Right. I want to ask a related question to this. You, you're just, you said you're not a fan of, like, you have the idiomatic JavaScript. So let's say uh, something like on the array, the for each function. Don't use it, don't use it, map, map, et cetera. Anything that is polyfillable, I think is great because it doesn't, it doesn't destroy the language. It gives you additional functionality. It's something that's standardized. Like I, well, I lament that Lodash is still a thing because people, it makes me sad when people don't know that we already have trim and map and reduce and for each and sum and basically... You know, we don't have pluck and we don't have merge. But then I also would question how often are you using that type of thing and do you really actually need it? I think that the, this is what I'd see it as. When somebody adds something to the language that reduces the number of dependencies that are necessary in order to operate within the language successfully, I think that that's a win. So... so. The polyfills, I think, or the polyfillable additions, I think, are great because they reduce the dependencies necessary to write normal code. Interesting. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I myself am a pretty big fan of TypeScript. I like TypeScript quite a bit. I like it would be my default for doing JavaScript, even in small cases when I can use TypeScript, I would use TypeScript. Tell me why, Joe. Tell me why. What is it that you love about it? I think it comes down to a very philosophical uh, view that I have about code. So in the mid, 
in the early to mid 2000s, I got very much into the idea of code craftsmanship. And let me caveat that by saying, I don't think that I'm a particularly great code craftsman, right? I've seen some amazingly written code. And I think in many cases, the difference between amazing code and moderate or average code is really just an that the magical nuance that some people have, their superpower of naming variables and functions, that old adage that the two hardest things in programming are uh, cache invalidation and naming, I find to be very true. Like, great names can really make a program. But obviously, there's so many other factors that make a program maintainable. The size of algorithms and, you know, uh, solid principles and patterns and, you know, all this same this stuff. So I, and I got into very much into this and testing and test-driven development and pairing and the gang of four patterns and 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 all this very much stuff. And and I through that phase of my career, I adopted this view very much that the number one problem with computer science is the computer scientists. And maybe a more accurate way to say that Daggers is to the heart. Yeah, the, the the problem with with programming is programmers, right? It's that's by far that's like the first. That's 99% of all the problems. It's not the languages and the constructs and, and any of this stuff that we constantly debate over, like whether or not TypeScript is good. <laughs> it's the people. It's the people problem because no matter how amazing or terrible a language is, the programmer can either do so much to smooth out those edges with what they write or can completely destroy it with what they write. No language right, is, forces you to write maintainable code. And vice versa, no terrible language can, you know, can be not be improved by a, a really good craftsman or engineer who, who knows about writing good code. So I very much have this view that it's so more, much more important to worry about the human factor of code and writing readable, maintainable code that I very much am not against making slower code bigger code, more bloated code, just so long as the code stays maintainable. Because what, as long as the code is maintainable, you can then begin to address your performance issues of, of all kinds. You know, performance is not just how long does this algorithm, t- you know, does it take one mo- microsecond or two microseconds to, for each loop? It's also, you know, or what is the O factor, you know, the big O no- fact notation of this code, but also like package delivery size and and latency and all, and, and all these other factors and security and all these things, those can all be addressed so long as the code is maintainable, right? So long as people can go on and maintain the code. But I've been at too many places where there was that really, really, really core piece to the application that was a 2000 line file that everybody was afraid to touch. <laughs> Even the original writer of the code, you know, who's there three years later, is, is afraid to touch that code. And if you can't touch that code, then you can't fix problems like performance. And, and what's a performance problem today is, a, is not a performance problem tomorrow. And, and uh, things that people say, well, this is so much slower, you know, in many cases, it actually doesn't even matter. I absolutely even, agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I think, I think that whenever the conversation of speed comes up, it right. dropped and it needs to be later evaluated. Is this important? Because 90% of the time, it isn't. But sometimes it is. Right. I've heard some statistics about either 4% or 8% or something like that of your code actually contains performance problems. So if you prematurely optimize, you have a 92% chance of, of working on code that does not have a performance problem. So as an example, I recently sent out a, an email to the uh, massive newsletter list at Thinkster. I sent out like three emails a week. And one of them was about the for each loop on arrays. And I talked about it. 
And I contrasted the for loop to the for each function, I guess not construct, but I contrasted them. I showed the for loop and then I showed a con, uh, uh, the for each is, is a analogous, you know, for the same construct and did that several times and, and taught that is, and then I even had taught what they were and how they worked and, and how to use them and how to use all the various aspects of the for each function. And the only people that replied to me, there's like five people that replied to that email. And every one of them pointed out, said things like, four is slower. You didn't say that. You didn't say that four was slower. I don't use, I don't use four each, or sorry, four each is slower. I don't use four each because it's slower. They, it was some variation on, hey, it's slower. Did, did you not know that it was slower? And, and one person... because yeah, when you've got seven items in your list, you want it to be blazing fast because <laughs> right. those extra nanoseconds, the users notice and they won't come back. Right. So one person even went so far as to just simply reply with no text. It was just a screenshot of a performance like measurement in the Chrome developer tools, right? Uh, of the two constructs uh, showing that four was like four, four each is like three times slower. Four was three times faster. So in each case is like, when's the, I can't even think of the last time I was iterating over an array that was so large that the loop, that the speed of the loop actually mattered. I, I, I probably have at some point in my career, but I just can't remember. Every time I'm looping over arrays, I'm looping over a few dozen, you know, a, a few to maybe most a hundred elements. Maybe, you know, so I've almost rarely gone above that. I've mentioned this example several times over the show because it's the only example I've ever encountered in my entire career in JavaScript where it mattered. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it matters anymore. I haven't gone back and retested the old code to see, but from what I understand, the performance improvements, it's been like a 100x improvement, so it's like negligible now. But I was iterating over pixels of an image that was something like 80 million mm -hmm. pixels. No, it wasn't that much. It was, I don't know, but it was like millions of pixels. Mm -hmm. And that was the only time that it's ever mattered in terms of measurable performance difference. So, and I don't, and, and today we have better tools in the browser with like Canvas and, you know, whatever, like the kind of stuff I was doing, you don't even need to do anymore. So I, I can't, I really can't imagine that on the web or even in Node, I can't imagine that someone would run into a case where a four versus a four each has any performance difference or even the performance difference they expect because the way that they're optimized under the hood, you can get better performance. I, if I'm not mistaken, you can get better performance in some cases with a four each than a four. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I even went so far as to write a follow-up email about you know the premature optimization. And I even put in this demo in StackBlitz with the iterated 10,000 times over a loop and I put two buttons and one of them used four loop and one of them used four each and I actually challenged people click the buttons and and it'll show you the output and and please figure out tell me which one is the four loop and which one's four each that was 10,000 items yeah you wouldn't uh, even be able to measure that in milliseconds right right so anyway it's a long story coming back to the idea that yeah, what's the point, Joe? Get to the, the point. point. Yeah, I really, that was a really long... Code craftsmanship. Send out craftsmanship, 4-H loops, down back to TypeScript. What's blah, up? blah, blah. And then come back, so coming back around to that, things that help uh, the human factors, I'm willing to sacrifice a lot. So if if the code is bloated, which again in TypeScript, I'm don't, not sure that we, I don't think we could say that because we don't necessarily know that it is. But whatever the draw, the drawbacks of TypeScript, if it produces more easily maintainable code, then I'm a fan of it. 
And there's, I wouldn't necessarily call it intra-controvertible evidence, but there is a preponderance of evidence of even like academic studies that show that typed languages produce fewer bugs. Now, it's still relatively hot, it's certainly hotly debated, although it's mostly hotly debated by people who are not doing performing studies or reading peer-reviewed studies. Not that I actually read any of the peer-reviewed studies, but I did read about them. So I am a fan of having types for that reason, the fact that it's likely to produce fewer bugs, I do feel like TypeScript produces more readable code because the code, the between the annotations and the IntelliSense in there, it just makes it makes it easier to write code. But yet, I still get to like feel very fluid with JavaScript. Although I will admit that I relatively frequently butt into the type, butt up against the type system, and have to like, ah, crap! How can I can't you know? And there sometimes they're just really frustrating. This type is 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 giving me a you know the compiler is warning me about this the type that I can't course this and and the error message is so complex that even with a relatively large amount of TypeScript experience I can't parse through it enough to actually fix what the problem is with casting and then I use those tricks of like just casting everything to in order to try to address the issue so I do admit that it does sometimes bite me in the butt, the type system, but I do overall like TypeScript and feel like it's a good thing in that uh, it improves code quality. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of my spiel on TypeScript, that it, it's a good thing and that it should be used. And let me put it, so I'm going to throw back something at you, AJ. Ryan Dahl, the creator of Node, just, what, a month ago, launched or announced his new project, Deno, which... I was trying to figure out what the heck Deno was, and I realized N-O-D-E-D-E-N-O, right? It's just Node slightly transposed. So he announced Deno, and Deno is a Node alternative, also written on the V8 engine, but he wrote it in TypeScript. And, and, and in Rust, by the way. Yes, and in Rust, that's right. He did write it also in Rust. So I think that's, that, that's pretty interesting. I do see a fair number of large projects now... I think that's probably pretty poor evidence to say, well, hey, so-and-so who's smart is doing this thing, so therefore this thing is smart. That's probably a really poor argument to make. But I do think it's interesting to see that a lot of people I admire and who I think are really smart scientists who have came up with amazing things are saying, hey, we're doing you know, this and this and that is that. The uh, Stack Overflow survey came up with Rust as the number one most liked language by people who use it, right? I don't know how much of that has to do with its types, but... Anyway, I do think there's this correlation. A strange community. Not yeah. strange isn't bad, but it is a... Peculiar? It's an interesting... Those people... I go to the meetups, and I don't, I don't know that I can quite call myself a crustacean because I don't... The way they speak, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's, like, it's almost like a cult that you just become part of when you start speaking as if you're part of it. So like, I like it, but I'm not like ready to be like, we, like everybody that uses Rust says we, like everyone, they all say we. So there is no like the Rust, you know, overlords. It's everyone is we. So as soon as somebody starts using Rust, like and has written three lines of Rust, it's, well, in, in Rust, we, it's so strange, but it's cool. It's really cool. I'm like, I'm this outsider and that I still say like I and you and they. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, anyway, I think that's it. I think that sums up why I think TypeScript is is good. And uh, so that's that's my spiel. I like TypeScript. I think it's good. I think that people should use it and people that aren't using it, you know, that's okay. 
you, you, it's okay to not like TypeScript and not use TypeScript, but I, I do like it. So I think, I think that it's the reason that we have it is because a JavaScript has just been weird. You know, JavaScript's been weird in that it's been a language that doesn't have any true ownership. It's run by a committee with like people change in and out and they have various different opinions. So, you know, things have gone back and forth and back and forth over the years with the, the changing of the heads but they're not really the heads because the browser maker is the one that actually like implement it. It's it's so strange that it's so disconnected and and discombobulated. Like Node is on its own island, the W3C is on its own island, TC39 is on its own island, Chrome is on its own island, Safari is on its own island. Everything's on an island, and they're just tied very very loosely together by the spec. And so, and nobody nobody can introduce a new language into the browser space because. Well, then you have to get a bunch of competitors to agree, like, yes, we want this new language, which just isn't going to happen. So, like, Dart, sorry, it failed. Like, okay, now there's mm-hmm. some sort of Dart platform on Android. That's cool, I guess. But, right. like, Dart did not succeed, isn't going to succeed, whatever. And I think TypeScript kind of hits the sweet spot between it's a different language, um, it offers different values, but it's close enough. Like, it's, it's got enough of JavaScript in it that it's familiar enough that people can kind of agree like, okay, I'm not abandoning JavaScript if I use this. I'm still kind of using yeah. JavaScript. Yeah, you know, and that's an interesting thing because when I write TypeScript, I don't really feel like I'm in a truly different language, right? I feel like in many cases, when you, like when you, did J, when you do jQuery or when you add in Lodash and you use it so frequently that it is, you know, just in there everywhere, right? You don't feel like you're not using JavaScript so much as you're using this like kind of superpower to, as, a, as a you know to put a positive uh, connotation on the term, but this like enhanced version of the same thing. But I don't feel like I'm not using JavaScript. So the other thing I, I like about it is I don't feel like I'm not learning JavaScript. As a to conversely point that out, like if you use jQuery, you didn't you don't you're not learning the DOM and. Way back in 2008 or 2009, I didn't care that I wasn't learning the DOM. Today, I feel like I wish that I knew the DOM API better because being able to just work with so the raw DOM API is valuable. Just read the API docs <laughs> for, for jQuery and then uh-huh. just type that in on window.document. And that's works yeah. the same. Works the same. Totally works the same. Yeah. Well, pr- pretty much. I mean, like they jQuery, the jQuery documentation is more or less as verbatim as it can be what they what they modeled the spec after. Mm-hmm. So right. that is that is like a huge, in my opinion, that's a huge win for the DOM and jQuery that they defined it so well and got such great adoption. Right. In most cases, of course, there's always going to be those corner cases where somebody's going to be like, I'm going to go do this stupid instead. For the most part, they took the good parts of jQuery that everybody knew and understood and they ported them directly over to the DOM the way that it ought to have been from the first place. Right, right. So, you know, some of, that is one thing I like about TypeScript. It doesn't feel like I'm not using JavaScript the way that, say, CoffeeScript did. Yeah, so, and that's something I think is really, really valuable. You need to bring that up. If you're writing Coffee or TypeScript, you are learning JavaScript because you have access to all, all of the native uh, APIs. Right. And the things that it adds tends not to be like a different version of what JavaScript actually already has. Like they don't have their, a different for each loop on the array, right? They, they don't do anything like that. 
everything that they add is things that don't exist in JavaScript, like types. And they, I don't know. It, yeah, I think that uh, they've done a pretty decent job with the TypeScript language. I mean, to, to me, it seems like one of the things that they've done is they've built JS doc into a language spec, mm -hmm. more or less. Mm -hmm. And then they restrict, I mean, kind of like, JavaScript, the good parts. JavaScript, the good parts is about, yeah, there's a bunch of language features, but you choose not to use them. And TypeScript is saying, well, there's a lot of stuff you can do dynamically, but we're choosing not to. Right. And I respect that, actually. All right. Well, are we, are we done? Summed up? We're ready to end? Go to picks? Let me, let me think on that for a moment. We said everything we want to say. We made final points about whether we feel like TypeScript is good or bad. I don't like it, and I hope that people will become better at JavaScript itself. But I don't know, TypeScript might be a path to do that. So, sure. Sure. Done. Done. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash JavaScript Jabber. All right. Who's going to do picks first? Oh, man. I had some good ones, but don't you know? I don't remember what they are. I got to take a second to... Shall I go through mine then? Yeah, if you've got yours handy, do it. All right, there's like gazillions of things I could pick because I just had ng-conf, just did ng-conf last week, so I had a whole week of doing stuff. Should pick Cypress. I gave a full day workshop on Cypress and a one hour like shortened workshop on Cypress at ng-conf and had a lot of fun doing that. those. I think Cypress is a pretty cool tool, but the one thing I think I really do want to mention from ng-conf is the StackBlitz people Got the guy, uh, founder, one of the two founders of Stackblitz, Eric Simons, gave a talk at ng-conf about using Stackblitz as sort of like an IDE. And he, he talked a lot about Stackblitz itself. But then he did something amazingly cool, which was so serendipitous because the theme at ng-conf this year was space. Stackblitz is launching a membership program. And to launch a membership program, they've actually found a rocket company that shoots satellites into space. And they are launching a web server into space on somebody's satellite. It's a web server they own and have purchased, and they're launching this web server into space, which is just absolutely nuts. Like, I'm not making this up. They're literally going to send a web server into space. And so you can go to Stackbits, and you can create Stackbits projects and actually deploy those into space if you have one of their... That's one of the, you know, paid the benefits of their new membership program that you can get. Okay, so I... I was looking at one of my picks and I missed some of what you said there. Did you just say you can deploy code into space just for the sake of deploying into space? Absolutely. There is zero, in fact, there's only negative, there's only drawbacks because the latency to getting up to space and back is not like amazing, right? You just run some code that's like, hi, hello from space. Right. Hello, universe. Right. We actually, so at Thinkster, we put together a little like what's new in NG and Angular 8 document. It's pretty short. 
and we built it in StackBlitz, which is completely overkill because you you know this is like just some HTML and CSS, but StackBlitz is a whole thing. But that's how you deploy stuff into space using their thing. So it, it, it's absolutely all just for the fun and the coolness of it to say, I've got some code that literally lives in space, that is running in, in space. And, you know, it's not launched yet, but go check out the talk from ng-conf. Eric Simons gave, uh, I think the talk is, let me find the talk title. It's called, uh, What If Your Dev Environment Was a PWA? And we'll put a link in the show notes. So go check that out. If you want to look also at what's new in Angular 8, then you can head to ng8-thinkster.deploy2.space. That's their domain name that everything goes out to is deploy2.space, <laughs> which is a really fantastic domain name to have been able to snag. <laughs> so yeah, that I thought was pretty fun. And watching the talk was really fun. And him talking about deploying to space and he trolls people using some pretty cool features of Stackblitz as well. So yeah, I think that'll be... I, I, I wanted to throw in one more pick. Since there's only two of us, I'll be indulgent here. The On May the 4th, Lego Star Wars came out with a new Lego set, the Tantive Four, which was the original ship that the Rebels were in at the very beginning of Episode Four, the original, original Star Wars movie that Princess Leia was on and C-3PO and R2-D2 were on. That was the Tantive Four, and they've got a new Lego set of that ship that they just barely came out with, and it's... It's really cool. I think it's a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks. So it's a, it's a pretty decent sized set. But I'm I haven't bought it yet, but I want to. So I'll pick that as well. Very cool Lego set. And those are my picks. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. The first thing I'm going to pick is a book that's called Measure What Matters. It talks about the OKR system, which is objectives and key results. So it's a style of goal setting for, well, anything. I mean, a business, a person, an organization, whatever. But uh, basically, like setting a long-term objective and then defining key results by which if you have met the key, res- if you've created the key results, then you will have met the objective. Like it's, it's, it's mutually inclusive in such a way that if you meet the key results, the objective is accomplished by definition and vice versa. If you did not meet the key results, then it's most likely that the objective was not accomplished. So it's being very specific to what what key results that you're targeting are. And this is, um, though it goes by different names, in Google it's called OKR, in other companies it's called other things. I think that uh, the basic idea started out of the some people that worked at Intel. And the idea is also that you don't let your your focus on key results get in the way of meeting your objective. So you don't, you, it, it, mm. you don't lose the forest for the trees and say, well, you know, we set this deadline for May 1st, therefore we need to do this by May 1st. And we were targeting to do it with this customer. Therefore we're going to do it with this customer. You know, you, the, the part of the value system is that you reevaluate and say, okay, is May 1st still reasonable? Is this in the green or is this in the red? If it's in the red, then we need to scrap it and just, you know, think about something different instead. If it's in the yellow, we need to figure out how to get it in the green or just, you know, that we want to push it in the red and be done with it because you want to have you want to have good results and and whatnot. But and and so it's just constantly reevaluating, reassessing, reassigning. So I, I like that book, Measure What Matters, and I would highly recommend it to other people that are trying to find improvement in any part of their 
their life, as well as anybody who's so sick of the buzzword agile. If you just like feel like if you hear agile one more time, your ears are going to bleed. OKRs might be a good <laughs> book to bring up with your, or, or uh, Measure What Matters might be a good conversation to bring up with your manager or, or whoever else. Because I, I think um, whereas agile has become a meaningless buzzword that's basically like smaller waterfalls with top-down decision-making, the, the OKR process I think is, is more well-defined by the people that actually defined it. Whereas mm-hmm. the agile process is something where everybody started writing a book on it and the people that actually defined it, what they intended it for and what they meant, we have no idea because no one's reading their books. <laughs> you know, we've right. got their webpage and all of these other things that are very loose interpretations of it that don't really seem to match up a lot of time. So anyway, that's that. And then another thing I'm going to, well, I'm just going to let, let people know. I mentioned this before, but I, I've started, started publishing some stuff on NPM uh, under the at root organization. And uh, it's mostly crypto stuff that's going up there right now. There's also an alternative to the to to request, but it's zero dependency. It's in 500 lines of code and it does like 95% of what everyone uses request for in an exactly API identical way such that it you know would pass the same tests and whatnot. But if you're into like very small libraries that are like zero dependency that that get the job done. I'm, I, I'd be interested in having more collaboration and more people bringing stuff to that if you want to. If not, if that sounds something interesting, especially the crypto stuff, because the crypto space historically has been just terrible and it's really gotten so much better both in Node and the browser. So for the browser, I'm actually publishing stuff to at BlueCrypt. So anyway, if you're, if you're in that and you want to check that out and uh, give me feedback, awesome. If not, then, oh, well, I just wasted 30 seconds of my breath or more. But um, that's something that I, I'm happy doing it. It's like, it's it's feeling fun and exciting to me. And so I thought I'd share. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening. And we will be back again next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.